Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. It's the Fan Midday Show here on 93.5 107.5 The Fan. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. This is such an appropriate song. Many did take the money and run. They're going to be running right on back, apparently, to the PGA Tour uh, to help me sort this out. This is more group therapy than anything else. Is my friend and colleague from SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio was a card-holding member of the PGA Tour for several years as well. Uh, Carl Paulson joins me. Hi, buddy. How are you, Will? Dude, you tell me. You were on the air with your show this morning. I'm getting texts from people. I have no idea what's going on. Uh, we woke up in a different day, it feels like, six hours ago. Yeah, there's no question about it. Um, you know that little game that we've been seeing on social media where people fill their mouths up with water and then slap each other in the face? <laughs> yeah. Tortilla? yeah, yeah, my That's kids do that all the time, yeah. It's sort of what this whole thing feels like. <laughs> it, it does feel like that, and... I guess, look, I knew I was coming in here today. We were literally going to talk about a Colts player being investigated for gambling and mock drafts for the Pacers for three hours. And it's like, okay, well, I guess this is a massive sports story. Uh, I'm going to, you've been talking about it from inside the weeds for the last two hours. If, I've got an audience here that is probably already tuning us out because now we're on to a second segment talking about golf. But this is a massive sports story. So if you had to sort of contextualize why this story that we cover day in and day out is so big from a sports fan standpoint, how would you answer that? Uh, boy, that's a good question. Uh, it, it, it does feel like a massive story. There's no question about that. Like it, it is going to be leading the headlines today and all of the sports talk radio and sports talk television, in my opinion. Um, look, it's, ultimately, this is a deal about, uh, about money. Uh, and getting, um, you know, golf unified again, um, but there's so many details still to come out, Will, that it's hard to yeah. even fathom what's going on. Yeah. Carl, is there a will there, when will there be a clear understanding of where Greg Norman lands in all of this? Because at least on the surface, it feels like PIF left him at the door and has you know gone to the altar here with the PGA Tour. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, found out a few moments ago that Greg found out about this uh, not too <laughs> real close to the announcement of when we all found out about it, which is a bad sign for, for Greg Norman. Um, I, I don't have any insight on what's going to happen with him in terms of him being the CEO of Live Golf. Uh, but it sure does seem like with the, you know, the press releases that were out, uh, all the stuff on CNBC, uh, uh, the interviews that they've had, with his name not being mentioned hardly at all, if at all, that's not a good sign uh, for Greg. Carl, you've always been really good in this entire process since all the live stuff started two plus years ago about taking a wait and see sort of approach. Um, that's going to be what we're going to have to do, especially since this is a breaking news type of day and it's irresponsible for any of us to speculate forward or think about what even 2024 is going to look like. But now that we're halfway through 2023 covering professional golf, given what it has looked like and felt like, 
I'm trying to go glass half full here today. It's like, well, at least this is a step, albeit it may feel very dirty to some. It may feel extremely hypocritical to many. I understand all of that. But given the golf that we've covered and watched this year is at least today for the common golf fan, a positive in some light. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Um, You know, I miss I miss watching Brooks Kepka play golf weekend and week out. I miss watching DJ play golf weekend and week out. Um, you know, there's other players that that I wish that we could watch weekend and week out. And 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 you know, moving forward, that could be a possibility. Now, uh, I don't have any idea what the landscape is going to look like in terms of keeping team golf in this. Um, which they said to... they are going to do. I saw that in the memo. Yeah. I was listening to you coming in, which is, I mean, I know that's the the fundamental model of live golf is this idea of team golf, which has been a really hard thing, I think, to sell at this point in time, but they're committed to it, at least it sounds like. It seems like it, and it's going to be interesting to see how that whole thing plays out, but there's just so much for them to get to. And look, they don't have any answers right now because they don't have any idea either. So all they did, you know, they come together and say, you know what, enough is enough. We're going to form an alliance. We're going to start a for-profit LLC. Uh, it's going to be funded by uh, the PIF, and uh, we're going to move forward and make this game bigger and better than ever. Look, I think in the long run, I, the golf fan wins. There's no question about it. I think the players win. Um, I think that uh, you know that the tour is going to have a big infusion of money coming into it now it, with this new entity that they're creating. Uh, you know, it, it's just going to be a matter of personal preference of, like you said, some people are going to feel like it's dirty. And, and, and I get that. Look, I, I don't have, I, you know, I, I don't have any qualms about people being upset about these guys going to live. I also don't have any problem with in, individually with any of the guys that did it, but I do understand, you know, people that, uh, you know, that were affected by 9-11 and other things that have happened throughout the world. Um, I, I do understand the concern and I understand uh, kind of both sides of it. I tried to stay pretty much in the middle and, and see what happens, but this is definitely massive, massive news. Carl, how difficult of a gap is it going to be for those that took the money and ran to live versus those that stayed and, and, and were loyal to the PGA. I know there's going to be players meetings that are going to take place, but how difficult is mending fences on the players side going to be? That's a great question. Um, that's the first thing I told my wife about it when it happened in the commercial break. And she said, Oh my gosh, what about the people that got offered contracts to go to live and didn't take it because they wanted to be a part of the PGA tour and they wanted to support the PGA tour. You know, we're talking, quarter of a billion dollars for, for Rory McIlroy. You know, uh, there was uh, reports out there that Tiger was offered $750 million. You know, there's, there's other guys, Will Zalatoris, that said he was offered $100 million. That, that's kind of hard to swallow that the guys took the money and then now it looks like they're going to be right back in the swing of things. I don't know if there'll be any rectification of that for the players that had opportunities to go and decided not to. To support the tour, I don't know if if, uh, if they're going to try to figure something out for those guys or not. But if I'm Will Zalatoris, I'm certainly not. Uh, I'm, I might have some animosity, you know. I I don't know. I, I wasn't offered a contract, so I I can't tell you from that side of things. Um, but 
it, it certainly is interesting. Zero disrespect to you coming from this question, Carl, but if this had come about 25 years ago, I'm not sure you're you're getting the $100 million offer from Live Golf. You're sitting at the Canadian Open, and this news breaks. You're in a player-only meeting today. What would be your first question if you're a you know top 100 player on the PGA Tour? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could, I don't know if I could narrow it down to one, Will, to be perfectly honest with you. I, it, there's just so many unanswered questions right now. I, You know, look, I think the in the long run, or at least in, in, in the short run, I should say, um, it, the news of the of them coming together in, into an agreement is, is the main news. Now, that's just a, as they're saying, framework of the agreement, the uh, getting from where we are right now with the announcement uh, that this is going to happen to it being implemented in onto paper and, and into uh, an LLC, a for-profit LLC entity. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of questions to be asked and there's a lot of stuff that's, that's going to go, uh, you know, it's going to take a while to, to get through. And, I certainly don't think it's going to happen in the next month or so. I, I think it's going to take a long time. I don't know what that schedule is going to look like. You know, are they just going to play in the fall uh, when the rest of the PGA Tour is playing for their spot uh, for next year's uh, money list or you know, FedEx yeah. Cup points list? Uh, how all that's going to go down? Um, I, I think my first question as a player would be, how in the hell did we not know about this? No one knew. Nobody. Nobody. It's wild. It's absolutely yeah. wild. I know you're up against it. You're going to keep doing this uh, car wash all day long. Um, I'm going to talk about other sports, I think, a little bit so I can ignore my phone and not talk about this for at least the next <laughs> couple of hours. Uh, I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Uh, enjoy uh, the craziness that is now June the 6th, 2023. You got it. I, I, I would say circle the day on the calendar because uh, golf is going to change moving forward. And, you know, Maybe potentially we double our audience, so we double the amount of people that that uh, that are in the game. Who knows? It, it, that's hopefully uh, what will happen. Hey, I got dibs on the first feature group from Jetta. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. That's Carl right. Paulson from SiriusXM PGA Tour Radio. Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. With Jimmy Cook, I'm Will Askett, coming to you from the DriveHubler.com studios. Full first hour with the massive news in my universe of the golf world uh, singing Kumbaya and all coming together with massive dollar signs in their eyes as they hop together down this road of holding hands and skipping into a unified world of professional golf. And then we finish the last segment with Isaiah Rogers and his probably never wearing a Colts uniform again sort of situation. So we avoided uh, talking about hoop for an entire hour because of the economics of how the sports world works right now, which is, you know, kind of depressing in some ways. Shapes. And it's forms. criminal in this state, depending on which county you're in, not talking about basketball for an entire hour. I just so let's let change that. that right now. You know him from a variety of ESPN platforms, the NBA and also the WNBA, and we'll work some baseball chatter in as well. Joining us from... I'm assuming New York is Ryan Ruka. Ryan, are you in New York right now? I just crossed the border into Connecticut, but but for all in, <laughs> intentions and purposes, yes, I am in New York. <laughs> uh, 
NBA Finals, we've been talking a lot about it here in Indianapolis because you look at you know the marquee names, the marquee draws, and then you just see two teams that just go out and have assembled things the right way, that play hard, that sort of give, in my kind of argument, a middle, small market type of team a little bit more hope. What have you enjoyed the most about this matchup so far? I think what you're talking about, I think, you know, the fact that there's continuity, that there's hunger, that there wasn't a, you know, quick, easy bake to this roster, Mm. that in a lot of ways, the last couple of postseasons have humbled the way we construct narratives around NBA contenders. You know, like I think we've seen you have to be you have to have a roster full of guys who are true two-way players or at least display two-way competency at this time of the year you cannot have guys on the floor for extended periods of time who are not able to hold their own on the defensive end of the floor who are not able to be some kind of offensive threat then i think the other thing we have to appreciate is continuity and realizing that that too is a huge part of having success at this juncture for an nba team and it takes time to build that continuity. And no, look no further than Phoenix. You know, Phoenix had more top-end star talent than anybody, but they looked completely disjointed, right? And they were taken down by Denver, who looked like the much better basketball team uh, in that series, even though Phoenix was able to push it to six games. And so I, I think that for me, what's encouraging about that is, to your point, it shows that, Who's going to win and lose is not just at the whim of a superstar wanting to change location in the summer, right? Because it takes much more than that. And I think it's going to be even clearer that that has to be the case moving forward when you think about the upcoming restrictions in the new CBA and how much harder it's going to be to put, you know, a few stars together. Like, you are really going to have to build that roster um, with a lot more depth and continuity and creativity than just, hey, we're going to get our three stars and then we'll fill in the pieces as we go. You know, that worked for a while. uh, But part of the reason it worked is because LeBron James was involved. And LeBron is, you know, a top two all-time NBA player. We have seen over the last couple of years it's taken more than just, uh, you know, trying to super microwave a team with some top-end stars. Ryan, there's always been chatter amongst the CBA since that LeBron big three era and every all the moves that followed, whether it was the Warriors, whether it was him in Cleveland or him in L.A., of would there be a, rec- a reckoning for the way teams are able to build? You mentioned that, that that's coming in the form of the CBA. How soon out of the gate will teams feel that squeeze? I mean, it seems like they're going to feel it pretty quickly. Like the Warriors tax bill could be unbelievable right out of the gates. Um, so, you know, whether or not, you know, some teams may still say like, Hey, we're willing to pay that bill because either a, they're still making so much money that they're willing to, or B, they know their franchise value uh, goes up, you know, astronomically when they are a championship contender and thus the tax bill is worth it to them, even if they're losing money in the interim. So it depends on the ownership group. Um, you know, maybe the Warriors are going to be the exception that says, like, hey, we're willing to pay a $200 million tax bill on an annual basis. Uh, you know, at some point that feels unsustainable. There could be a, an exception. But I think in the way teams think about building their rosters and the kind of moves they make and, and you know, what contracts they value, what draft picks they value, I think you're going to feel it right away. 
does that shift then, Ryan, in terms of, you know, I, I view it like from an NFL standpoint, we reached a point where it felt like NFL draft picks were, especially high ones, were so much more untouchable because of what it meant to roster construction. And from an NBA salary cap standpoint, especially in, say, this market in Indiana, where you know, we're trying to figure out how they're going to give away some of their five picks because they don't have roster space <laughs> for a bunch of projects. Right. But at the same point in time, it's, you know, are we, are we pricing veterans out to a point where draft picks become more valuable in a new economic reality? Not necessarily, because those draft picks, depending on where they're selected and, and what they've done in their first few years, you know, that, that first extension they get can be really hefty. I mean, that, that first extension can be very pricey. So, um, you know, there was a long period of time where, you know, you there's several veterans on more affordable contracts you would have been better off with than say Andrew Wiggins first rookie extension right or even you could say that about a guy like Carl Anthony Towns not to pick on Minnesota but like those are a couple examples of guys who like did you want to be paying them 30 35 40 million dollars a year or is there a veteran out there who you can get for 10 that that maybe fits a little bit better you know uh, so I think that in in some ways it's it, it makes the draft picks more valuable in those sort of like middle rounds, finding guys who are, who are really good, but maybe not going to demand the biggest contracts. You know, I mean, guys like Mikkel Bridges, right. Who aren't, you know, at the tippy top of the draft and then sign, you know, extensions that are affordable. Like if you look at Mikkel Bridges contract, you know, he has, I think it was five years, 90 million. That's one of the best deals in the NBA now. Um, and so I think finding those spots uh, becomes even more important. And then maybe where you feel it more on the draft front is being able to develop those draft assets into contributing players more quickly. You know, being able to have a second or a third year guy be a real contributing role player on a title contending team while they're on that rookie contract and before they're up for that next deal. Ryan Rucco with us, play-by-play voice for ESPN, covering the NBA and the WNBA, as well as with Yes Network and host of the R2C2 podcast with CeCe Sabathia. Nice enough to take some time with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Ryan, when we go back to the NBA Finals for a second, and Eric Spolster is not listening, so we don't have to worry about our untrained (laughs) eyes with this comment, but is it as simple with Miami as, all right, if they are able to play the defense they played all series long and they're able to go north of 48, 45% from three, maybe this is where the series shifts outside of that happening for them, which has been the key to their run throughout. Denver's probably going to regain control of this thing as the series moves on. You know, it's interesting because obviously we all look at the Nuggets and and, you know, the fluidity with which they play basketball and the dominance they've shown in this postseason and the, the depth of talent they have. And we say, well, that team is clearly the better team. But we said the same thing about Milwaukee. We said the same thing about Boston. And Miami found a way to beat both those teams. And so I think that what we're seeing with Miami is an actual tangible impact of belief, and of competitive nature and coaching 
and drive and hunger. And then, yes, of course, they have some, some really strong talent as well. But because of it, I feel leery to predict anything with great confidence. Like, I, I picked the Nuggets to win this series in seven, which I was giving Miami, I think, more credit than a lot of people. I didn't understand the people who were looking at the series saying, like, oh, Denver's going to sweep them. It's going to be a quick series. After what we just saw Miami do to teams who had better records than Denver in the regular season. And I know the Milwaukee series got a little weird because of Giannis's injury, but even when Giannis came back, Miami was still able to handle business. Um, and I, I just, I feel like they, what they do is they don't overreact to things. They just make necessary adjustments. And that's where Eric Spolster is brilliant, right? You know, they knew, okay, little adjustments. They wanted to turn Jokic into more of a scorer than a shooter. As it turned out, that was a fruitful strategy, despite the efficiency with which Jokic scored, right? But they knew, hey, we need to keep getting the shots that we got in game one. This time our guys are going to hit it. And they did. And so I look at, I look at Miami and I say, yeah, if they don't shoot well, if they shoot like they did in game one in five of seven games, then they're probably not going to win, right? But if they shoot close to what they did in game two from three, their defense is probably going to be good enough that these are going to be really tight games they have a shot to win. And as we've seen all postseason long, when they are in late clutch situations, they usually emerge victorious. So I think it is very much a toss-up series. I give Denver the slight edge because they have the best player. They have the best one-two combo. Their duo is more reliable than Bam is with Jimmy and because they have a little bit more talent. But I am not in any way counting out Miami. And, you know, what we tend to do is, like, people saw the way game one unfold and they said, oh, it's going to end up being a sweep. And then you see the way game two is and say, oh, Miami's going to win the series. And it's like, well, if you pick the teams to have anything other than a sweep, then at some point they're going to lose games in the series, right? So the way I look at this right now is I still look at it as a seven-game series with Denver, the home team, winning it. But I I will not be surprised by anything that happens these next two games in Miami. Uh, I think no matter what, we're headed for a long series. Ryan, you're building a championship roster, and you can pick any player off of the Heat team with the exception of Jimmy Butler. Is it easy to say Adebayo's the next guy, or is there somebody else that you've seen in this postseason? No, if you're building a roster, you're going to take Bam. It is easy to, to pick. He's so good defensively. He's an incredible worker. He's got a great attitude, fantastic culture guy. And he still is a productive offensive player. He's just not as reliable and consistent on that end as you typically want from a star. Um, But if I'm building a roster, I'm absolutely uh, taking Bam. And I think we also have to look at the results, too, for as much as this time of year allows us to hone in on players' strengths and warts more than other times a year, and, and certainly those warts for Bam can be amplified. He also has had a lot of success this time of year. Like, this is now, what, the third straight postseason that he's gone on a deep run, at, or three or four postseasons that he's gone on a deep run as the second-best player on the Heat. Like, that's saying something. You know, that's not happening unless he's impacting winning in a big way. Ryan, the Pacers are hoping that this offseason is a transformative one for them in that they're not a lottery team anymore and perhaps in a perfect world they are 
sniffing a play-in spot, ideally maybe even a playoff spot if they were able to have a quick enough turnaround. When you look at what happened with Miami in the East, and I've asked this to a number of different people, but I want to get your perspective on it because you're in the New York market. Brooklyn faces this. New York faces this. It feels like in the middle of the pack, there could be perceived to be an opportunity to seize power in the Eastern Conference in terms of top to bottom with how much change has gone on throughout the conference so far this offseason. Is there a window of opportunity here for teams that were on the outside looking in last year to make serious strides? Or do you expect everything to stabilize from the top down, your Boston's, your Milwaukee's of the world this offseason as things go post-finals? No, I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, there's a chance that we have unforeseen uh, player movement with any of those teams, right? Like, we don't know for sure that Boston's definitely running it back. We think they probably will because it's hard to get talent in your building like a Jalen Brown. But if they decide, hey, we don't want two $60 million a year players, maybe they go a different direction, and we don't know what that opens up there, right? Uh, in Milwaukee, same thing. They have a couple key decisions to make with Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton, depending on what happens there. Well, what does Giannis think about that? Uh, in Philadelphia, you know, if James Harden leaves, is there any chance that Joel Embiid says, like, you know what, I don't see my path here. I want out. You know, so I, I think that – and then, of course, there's also just that nobody there has won at this time of year with consistency, right? It's not – we're not talking about any team that has become the Warriors or that was LeBron's Cavs. We're talking about teams that have kind of taken turns being the best team in the East. In the case of Philadelphia, they haven't quite gotten over the hump. But, you know, I would have thought Milwaukee 100% was going to the finals this year. And they lost in the first round. So uh, I think that anything is on the table. Because one thing we don't account for enough is improvement. You know, what happened with Sacramento this year? Like, yeah, they they lost in the first round, but they played an incredibly competitive seven-game series. You know, part of the reason, and I know Sacramento's (laughs) an interesting team to bring up when we're talking in Indiana about Indiana, but – part of the reason Sacramento took the leap that they took is because of internal improvement, because we saw huge leaps from De'Aaron Fox, huge leaps from DeMontis Sabonis, right? You guys saw it with Tyrese Halliburton last mm-hmm. year. You know, those leaps often do eventually translate into leaps in wins. You know, what happens with Matherin this upcoming season, right? And so I, I wouldn't rule out anything because nobody in the East is untouchable. So if you – hit on a free agent or two, or you draft the right guy or two, or more importantly, the guys who have talent, who have proved NBA worthy, develop a little bit more inside your building, then yeah, there's no telling what that leap could be. Is that going to be a championship next year for a team like the Pacers? Well, of course not. But could it be a team that, you know, finishes fifth or sixth and, you know, makes a run to a a late first round, you know, the sixth, seventh game in the first round or or potentially somehow finds a way to the second round. Like, that may seem a little far-fetched, but it's not impossible. Speaking with Ryan Rucco, you know him from ESPN, Yes Network, and everywhere you get your best sports. Uh, I want to transition to WNBA, Ryan, because I think it's a good segue when you talk about talent development here in Indianapolis. Obviously, the fever 
have sort of loaded up with great talent over the last couple of years, a couple of losses over the last week, but they've been significantly more competitive. And I guess my broader sort of question when you're trying to build and we talk about patience when you have a 30-team league or a 32-team league, but in this situation, in the WNBA, we've seen you know, how many top draft picks that haven't made it to year two. Mm-hmm. Where's the development I guess, timeline or patience from what you've seen from the WNBA standpoint, because it feels harder. It feels it's significantly harder to me if you're putting together a championship contender in the WNBA, because it's like, well, next year I'm going to bring in a couple of more pieces and I don't have anywhere to put them. And it's not like we have a a G League team to be able to sort of help out with all of this. It, It feels like it's a really difficult time right now for a league that I think is on the cusp of something really special. Yeah, it's hard to develop those players who maybe wouldn't get a ton of run early but turn into winning, contributing players, right? Right. right. So just to use one of my broadcast colleagues as an example, when J.J. Reddick got to the Magic, he wasn't a rotation player right away. It took him a while to carve out consistent minutes in the NBA, and he worked his tail off to become – a regular rotation player and then starter on contending teams, right? But in the WNBA, he may not have ever had that chance because of the roster crunch you're talking about. Maybe they're just like, oh, J.J. isn't ready to be the you know 10th player on the team right now. We got to get rid of him. And, and he never really gets that chance. So that is you know one of the harrowing parts of putting together a roster if you're a general manager in the WNBA. Having said that, the true transcendent talent is always going to get their playing time. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen in recent drafts is you haven't necessarily had that. And so, you know, maybe Aaliyah can turn into that. We'll see. Um, She certainly is someone who I think we've seen a lot of good with, and I'm happy for her to be in the professional game because I think it's going to really help her after she was – you know, still finding ways to be effective while getting triple teamed in her senior year at South Carolina. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, we've also had drafts in the WNBA where you see some of those players who are, who could be contributing players, but aren't transcendent players. And we're about to, I think, have some serious difference makers uh, enter the WNBA over the next couple of drafts. Caitlin Clark is going to be an all-star right away in the WNBA. Um, I think that Angel Reese will be a serious force and all-star caliber player right away in the WNBA. I think Paige Beckers, Cameron Brink, maybe Brink takes a little bit longer, but like those are talents where you could potentially build your roster around them. And, and, and there's some others coming as well. Uh, Cody McMahon for Ohio State is going to be a serious game changer. She's only a freshman this past year, but right away when she comes in. So when we get some of those players coming into the W, I think those are the players who you look at and you say, oh, okay, I can actually hitch a championship team to them. Um, And Indiana, unfortunately, you know, maybe with the exception of this year, has been towards the top of some drafts where I think you have some good contributing players, but maybe not that like transcendent talent uh, with the exception of Aaliyah um, and seeing what she can do. But, um, but if, you know, 
But if they're bad enough this year, maybe they'll be there <laughs> next year to get that transcendent talent to to join Aaliyah. Ryan, I have to ask one of these since we have you, and I can squeeze in the local tie because the White Sox are about to have a three-game set with New York here tonight. What does it do for the highly competitive AL East and the Yankees if Aaron Judge has to miss time with his toe? I mean, it's hard because, because uh, you know, first of all, as we saw, like the Yankees' offense was performing like a bottom five offense in the majors while Judge was out. And it was only a 10-day IL spin. Some of that offensive struggle happened uh, before he got hurt, but it, it really cratered while he was hurt. He comes back and instantly, and again, not just because of him, because Bader had come back as well, right. and, and there were a couple other factors, but Judge coming back was the biggest factor, and instantly they become a top-three offense in the majors. He is as big a difference maker to a major league offense as we have seen since Barry Bonds. So when he's out, it really is impactful. And in a year where the division, as you're alluding to, is so good and every misstep is going to be capitalized on by the competition up and down the division, I think him missing time does matter more than other years. Now, ultimately, if you're just thinking, hey, I just want to get in the wild card, get in the dance, make the playoffs, like, okay, I I don't think him getting another 10-day IL spin is going to – hurt that but you know with the lead the Rays got out to and the fact that they're still six and a half up on the Yankees despite how well the Yankees have played over the last five weeks like yeah if you miss Aaron Judge for 10 days and you go four and six or three and seven in those 10 days and now you're 10 games back again from the Rays that that hurts Ryan, I know you're super busy. We appreciate taking some time great insight as always and best of luck each of your next couple of calls oh we appreciate you having me always and uh Enjoy the summer, both of you. We'll talk to you sometime soon. You the man, Ryan. That's the great Ryan Rucco. From the DriveHubler.com studio with Jimmy Cook, I'm Will Haskett. This is the Fan Midday Show. Rolling into hour number three, final guest is with us. He is Joel A. Erickson from the Indianapolis Star covering the Colts each and every day and doing a great job of it. And Joel, if you haven't been listening to the show, don't worry. But if there is anybody in the Indianapolis market that is as happy that there is this massive golf story going on right now of the collaboration of forces, is it Isaiah Rogers right now? Uh, You might not even know. That's true. He's probably turned off all. He's probably turned off all uh, means of social media and stuff. Uh, your first reaction when you heard the story sort of breaking yesterday? Um, well, so I've had this nagging feeling ever since the Lions um, story broke, with they had where they had four players who um, got varying lengths of suspensions. That I can't remember. I saw a tweet or somebody said, "Surely there's going to be more of these at some point, right?" And that's kind of been in the back of my mind, not really in a Colts way, not guessing that at all, but just that, that at some point it was going to come out. So that that was my initial first reaction was, oh, it's here that the next one happens. Joel, how much of this, and I know this will be something that we find in the coming days. I'm not absolving Blaine by any means, by the way, of Isaiah Rogers. We had a larger conversation about this where even with Calvin Ridley, I could kind of get by on the hypocrisy of it all because he wasn't directly betting on his games. In my mind, when you cross the line into betting on the team you play for, regardless of win or loss, regardless of prop bets, that's a whole unacceptable, cannot be had territory. That being said, how much of this is the NFL needing to really reassess 
how they hammer home to players, you absolutely cannot do this. That's a good way to put it. Um, because I think, you know, gambling is just, gambling on sports is just, it's a bigger part of everyday life now, I think, just that there was so many places legalizing it. Um, and, like, even if you're not uh, somebody who gambles a lot, like, I, I don't really gamble on sports. Um, but I, you know, I have buddies who do, and I will text them before big games and just say, hey, what's your bets? What am I cheering for? Um, if uh, if I – and I think it's just – it feels like it's it's more um, prevalent than ever given some of the, the – uh, now, obviously, I'm sure they've been saying this, but they, they – this is six players now, Calvin Ridley, the four Lions, and now Isaiah Rogers. And I think that it's it just seems like they got to do something to make it a little more clear. Is it clarity, Joel, or is it changing of the way that the rules are structured at this point in time? That would be my question. Did we lose Joel? Yeah, we lost Joel. No. I'll get him back here in a second. How do you know that? You just could just the hear beep. It? Oh, the beep. Yeah. What's well, inside pro baseball? Yeah, that's stuff right it's, there. It's, that it's, it's one of those little little nuanced aspects. Made. Yeah, exactly. I, heard a, I didn't hear it. framing. Beep. All right. <laughs> I was lining up a really good question there. I thought about it. Uh, we'll get Joel right back on the line here in just a second to, to ask that question. But now that we know exactly what it means. Oh, look, he's back already. Joel, right before we got disconnected there, is it. Is it more clarity on how the rule is made, or is it a change to the actual rule? And again, this is not with, as Jimmy's had a really good job pointing out all day in the show, betting on your own team is a completely different sort of line. I don't think you're ever going to have sort of, I guess, uh, wiggle room in that. But do you feel like there's going to be a movement or a push within a players association or players or anything to sort of soften on some of this stuff? Um. It's tough. I don't think so because they can bet on a lot of other sports, you know. And I think just betting on the NFL in general, I think it, it's pretty obvious why they have to kind of take that seriously just because of the potential for, even if it's not your game, it's just the potential for, um, you know, stuff that leagues just can't have uh, inside of them. So I, I don't know that it's going to change. The one the one that's weird is I don't really understand the no betting inside your own facility on other sports. Um don't completely get that. I'm sure there's probably a good explanation, but I, I think that if anything, if anything, I think it probably gets stricter now than than anything, just because the NFL can't like these headlines. Is the aggressive step? Because this is my mind, Joel, and maybe I'm wrong on this, and it's this is usually what happens. I have too simple of a thought on it to the point that I couldn't possibly work. But if you're a professional athlete, you're making life-changing money for, for the most part obviously not every position is equal but you're going to make life-changing money that nobody else is going to sniff because of your ability to play said sport is it a matter of like legally within the contracts that you cannot place bets on the sport that you play like is that the aggressive step forward and if not i mean i would have thought everybody would have taken the hint when calvin ridley got a year and it wasn't even games he was playing in. I would have thought at that point, okay, well, they're serious about this. We need to not do this. And that has not been the case, clearly. You know, I don't I don't know if that clause is already in contracts or not. I, I've never read When I've read through a contract, I've never looked for it before or if it would fall under, you know, some sort of conduct clause. That's a good question. Um, do I have to – you probably need to have a look at, like, a lot of different contracts to have any kind of – feeling for what's what's standard and what's not 
Um, but again, I think that you know, I mean, just how many people do you guys know that that are that are you know placing sports bets quite a bit all over all all the time? I think that even even with Calvin Ridley happening, I think that it's it's I don't know. I guess I don't want to say I'm not surprised. I just want to say I guess I guess maybe more that it's 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 not. It doesn't seem like it's that far-fetched in today's day and age to, to have more stories like this coming out. Yeah. Joel Erickson from the Indianapolis Star joins us. This is obviously going to have on-field ramifications now for the Colts. Uh, I was even talking yesterday just kind of jokingly about free agents that are still out there and even made a, a quip about, oh, well, I don't think they have the cornerback depth that would remove the possibility of going out and making a move. What is this? We know there hasn't been a move yet, but I mean, let's be honest, Joel, with where this thing is likely going. What does this immediately do from a personnel situation for the Colts? Well, they were already fairly, they were already pretty inexperienced at cornerback. Um, obviously, Juju Brents is, they got Juju Brents and Darius Rush and Jalen Jones, and they've got all these draft picks at cornerback. Um, but even even Rodgers has played. I mean, he's been a starter at times, but he's played something like, I think, you know, 400-ish snaps, 400-plus snaps the last two seasons. Uh, and so they they already were at a significant experience loss there. So I think that's the interesting thing is are, are they willing just to go with the the young guys? You could pro- you probably have to – you feel like you probably are going to add somebody, um, but you can do it at any time because – you know, if guys are available now, I don't think you have a ton of competition for them, um, at least at this point. So, it, I, I, I think you're probably going to see an addition. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be a starting caliber one, or maybe it's more like the Rashad Perryman signing, where it's more of a veteran who's played, um, but maybe is not. Um, you know, maybe it's more of a lottery ticket type thing. If you if you feel like you you like those draft picks or you did before and that's why you were headed this way in, in general because obviously I think you kind of think the team I mean if there's, if there's been an NFL investigation ongoing they probably had some idea that this was going on for a little while at least How much clarity if any do you think Julie Erickson Colts beat rider for the Indy Star nice to take some time with us how much clarity if any do you think there will be at the next media availability on the Colts side of things or do you expect this to be usual you know that we're, we're focused on team matters right now. We're going to let this play out in the NFL investigation process and let their discipline be what's made. Or obviously they could cut him too, but how much clarity if it all happens in the next couple of days? I, I think that it's probably, you know, if, if they had something to say, this, it would already be out. Um, I think out of respect to both Isaiah and, and the NFL investigation, that's probably the case. There's also... Um, Without knowing for sure, my, my assumption or guess would be that there's, you know, NFLPA ramifications to um, what happens if you, you know, make move or say stuff before um, some kind of investigation be over. Um, you know, so there, there's all that kind of stuff. I, I think we're probably in a holding pattern until the NFL gets through. I, I know uh, Rogers Isaiah put out that statement, um, but that's not necessarily – there's not a lot of details in that to know like what the NFL is looking for. Joel, if it weren't for this story, what do you wish we were talking about for the Colts <laughs> on a Tuesday? Um, <laughs> well, I think that the, you know, the, the obvious story uh, as we continue to go forward here is, is Anthony Richardson and his development, you know, um, 
that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I was on with I was on the morning show yesterday, and we were talking about things like, you know, if if you're Chris Ballard and, you're, and you only you could only watch one position group, which one would you be watching this summer? And I said offensive line. I think that stuff is probably more the normal summer fair. Um, but the other thing about this, I I don't know. It's 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 kind of it's especially after the statement seems kind of open and shut. So I think, I think we're kind of looking at, you know, it's just where the team is at. They've got another week here. We get a chance to see them three days in a row, which I've always said is for me, that's the biggest thing about training camp is when we see these guys practice in one off settings, it's, it's not stuff you can necessarily take a lot away from because it's, it's small sample size. Three days isn't really a big sample size either, but it's bigger than we've had. So I think that's that's the kind of stuff we'd be talking about. And then they're going into the break. Um, and and uh, unfortunately, it's the, the conversation is going to be a little different. Does it change anything from a schematic defensive angle, given the fact that I know you had tweeted this, as others did on the beat last week, that Julian Blackman is going to be shifting to strong safety this season? That was the plan. Do you envision that impacts that at all in terms of, you know, obviously he's playing nickel corner at times last year, but does that impact anything with him from that position swap with how thin from a veteran standpoint they're going to be at corner? I wouldn't think so. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty big – it seems like it's a big difference in this defense, maybe bigger than it was at Eberflus's defense in terms of nickel versus outside, um, slot versus outside, the way they kind of look at that. And I think that you know going from free safety to, to strong safety to, to you know outside corner is probably a – I think you're more looking at, you know, Flowers, Brent, uh, Rush. Is there another signing uh, to go along with that on the outside? Because this team has, has generally shown a preference, especially last season, um, with with the way Brandon Faison kept getting reps to to stick with some of those longer guys on the outside as long as possible. Joel, we were talking about this yesterday on the other side of the ball in this wide receiver room that grew with the news yesterday that Brashad Perriman had been signed to this. It's not a sexy sign. Who really knows where he fits into this room? But I was more asking the question because of Reggie Wayne's overall versatility and greatness and it being a wide receiver room where I wouldn't say that you have a number of wide receivers who stand out because they have one superstar skill as a wide receiver, and yet none of them, I would say, are deficient. It's it's very similar to a bunch of bodies that could kind of mirror the career of what we saw, the full body of work for Reggie Wayne. And a lot of times I feel like that gets us into a habit of saying, well, they don't have like that guy that just is a speedster on the outside that goes and gets it, or whatever it might sort of be. What, what do you think about this room that they're trying to grow as Reggie Wayne continues to grow as a coach, given given how he performed as a player. Well, I know, so I know that Shane Steichen prefers to have guys who do different things. He feels like if you have a lot of guys who do one thing, um, it, it kind of makes it harder on you and your game planning and how you're going to divvy things up. He said that at the owners meetings. Um, and I think that if you look at some of these guys, like Pittman, obviously bigger over the middle, more um, did some jump ball stuff with Carson Lentz, but that's, that's, he's kind of been bigger over the middle, that kind of thing. his, the volume type catches is his first couple of years here. Pierce uh, is is more of a downfield receiver. It was the hard part is we haven't seen it as much with him because the downfield element was so 
just not there in in last year's Colts offense. But I think in this year's offense, uh, the way he shakes out and the way things look for him probably looks looks a lot different. Josh Downs is kind of a, a clear slot receiver, that separator over the middle. And then, you know, I think if you look at those three as the guys who you're looking at as, okay, those are the high draft picks, those are the guys you expect them to be counting on, you know, then based on what Steichen said, to differentiate yourself and get yourself on the roster, it's going to be how can you be used? Like what do they, what, what role do they think you can fill that they maybe don't have right now? Um, and, and Perryman's obviously uh, another, or he's been, when he's been at his best, I think he's been kind of a downfield target for, for most teams. Um, I don't necessarily think that that puts him in the same realm as Pierce. Um, but I, I think that's part of it is, is just, Steichen's going to want to see these guys be different in some way or the other. And so as, as we get into training camp and what we're looking at, that's something that's going to be in the back of my mind is, okay, this, this is what they think about the top three uh, in terms of you know the draft picks, that kind of thing, and how do guys fit around them. Joel, going back to the Rodgers thing for just a second, when you're going through this process of getting all the details, and again, this is going to be, I don't think, an open and shut conversation. This is going to be something that, whether Rodgers likes it or not, whether the Colts like it or not, that they're going to be in the spotlight for until there's resolution. Do we have any idea how long they knew or how long they were aware that this was all forthcoming with Rodgers and that the Indiana Gaming Commission was aware of it and the NFL was obviously opening an investigation? Is this one of those things where they were also kind of caught by surprise like this, or is there a thought this has been known for weeks? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know when it came out um, or any of that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any idea. This is the first time, I think, that I remember there being like a hint before the investigation was over with one of these things in my mind, I, you'd have to talk to a, a Falcons or, or a Lions reporter, but in my mind, those stories kind of happened like right as, at the same time as the NFL released them. So that, that's maybe a little bit different in that we have some idea that the NFL investigation is going on, but there's, there's a part of it. There have been six, you know, there's been six cases now, but really just three different events. And I, I don't think we have enough of a, a back, history to have really a, a good idea of how the NFL pursues these. Um, like I said, previously, I think it's been more of just, here comes a suspension, you know? And given that, is there any justifiable fear to the fact there could be other investigations that are taking place that we aren't aware of, whether it's in this locker room? I mean, I guess this locker room would be the one that we'd be the most concerned with. Yeah. I mean, no idea. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it just sort of, be, I mean, we, we were talking about it. It's, and you mentioned it too. You had those tweets or you saw the thing earlier where you said when things initially broke, like this can't be the the first or the last of right. these situations to happen. And it does beg a really important question of how systemic this problem could sort of be, whether or not we think that problem is truly a problem or or just merely a number of guys who are just flippant to the rules that they are willingly violating. Well, I mean, you know, does it end up being kind of like the performance enhancing thing where, you know, there's a handful of suspensions for those every year that I don't think really get talked about. They just kind of happen. Um, you know, every once in a while a player is good enough that, that it gets talked about, but um there's there's a handful of those every off season. You know, is, is it going to be like that? Is this going to be a one time thing? I, I think it's too early to know. 
exactly where we're headed with this. But, you know, the, the four players on the Lions, I think that was sort of the, oh, this that, that was sort of the, okay, this might be more of a continuing storyline than, than we thought it was when, when Calvin Ridley first got suspended. Well, whenever we get more information, we know where it'll come from. Joel A. Erickson, you can follow him at Joel A. Erickson on Twitter, and he will have the news as it comes to us. Thanks, Joel. Yep, yep. Thanks for having me on, guys.